your Bibles with you this morning, would you please take them and open them, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10, 11, and 12 of Ephesians, chapter 6. The title of the message, How It All Began. This begins a new sermon series. We've just finished, as you know, a series from the book of Ephesians talking about walking in a worthy way. And whenever you became a Christian and began your spiritual journey and walking in the unique way as Christians should walk, worthy of the calling to which we've been called, you have entered, whether you realize it or not, spiritual warfare. The devil does not like you at all. He hates you. He hates Christ. He hates the church. He hates anything that has to do with the Christian faith. And uh, we are at war, whether you realize it or not. And Paul talks about this in this sixth chapter of Ephesians. And the Lord willing, for the next few weeks, we're going to be examining the spiritual armor uh, that Paul describes in this sixth chapter and realizing uh, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Uh, but we need to be dressed in the spiritual armor that he describes in this chapter. But today's message uh, has to do with how uh, this spiritual warfare began. So look, if you would please, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10, 11, and 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You may recall uh, the historical uh, newsreel that showed President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressing Congress the day after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. Calling it a day that will live in infamy, the president declared that in reality, America was already at war, but Roosevelt just needed a declaration of Congress to make it official. Well, there is another declaration that needs to be made, and it is this, that you and I are involved in a special kind of war, spiritual warfare. Listen to what some outstanding Christian leaders and authors have had to say about spiritual warfare. Billy Graham, our beloved world evangelist, in his book, Angels, God's Secret Agents, had this to say. Satan, the fallen prince of heaven, has made the decision to battle against God to the death. He is the master craftsman who has plotted destruction during all the ages since he first rebelled. In his warfare against God, Satan uses the human race which God created and loved. So God's forces of good and Satan's forces of evil have been engaged in a deadly conflict from the dawn of our history. We live in a perpetual battlefield. The great war of the ages continues to rage. The lines of battle press in ever more tightly about God's own people. The wars among nations on earth are merely pop gun affairs compared to the fierceness of battle in the spiritual unseen world. This invisible spiritual conflict 
is waged all around us incessantly and unremittingly. Ray Stedman, uh, who is now deceased but a former pastor of a church in California said, it is time we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ accept the fact that life is warfare and that we are engaged in a life and death struggle. The forces we face are not flesh and blood enemies, nor are they human agencies, but they are as real as any enemy who ever wielded a sword, a gun, or a flamethrower. Our enemy is legion, a deadly pantheon of spiritual hosts of wickedness. Tony Evans, the pastor in uh, Oak Cliff um, in Dallas, uh, had this to say about our spiritual warfare. You and I are at war, he writes. In fact, we are engaged right now in the mother of all battles. The war I'm talking about is spiritual warfare that you became a part of the day that you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And then one of my favorite, Dr. Paul Powell, former pastor of Green Acres Baptist Church in Tyler said, when we became Christians, we entered into spiritual conflict. The enemy is Satan. The battleground is our mind. And the issue is our Christian walk. We do not live in a neutral world. There are hostile forces at work in our world, an evil one, with a host of helpers opposed to God and to man. Go back with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 6 and look at verse 12. For our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. Now notice the word struggle. The word struggle is actually a military term that refers to a hand-to-hand, face-to-face conflict with the enemy. This is not something that's done with you being apart from the enemy, operating a computer or some technological device to send weapons, missiles and bombs and airplanes and so forth. No, this is hand-to-hand combat, face-to-face with the devil, our enemy himself. Notice also in verses 11 and 12, the word against. In these two verses, the word against appears six times. Notice it, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle or our hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat is not against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not fighting human beings, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Six times in these two verses, you find the word against. And this word in the Greek language against means hostile enemy. Hostile enemy. Uh, And uh, this enemy is against us, opposed to us, fighting against us. So how did all of this begin? How did this warfare begin? Well, in order to understand that, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. So take your Bible and turn, please, to the first chapter of the book of Genesis, the opening book of our Bible. There are three things, and I hope you got your outline as you came in this morning as we follow uh, and, and work through the message of how it all began. So we go back to Genesis, and there in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see God's creation of a perfect world. 
When God created this world, it was perfect. There was no sin at all in the world that God created. It was a perfect world without sin. I want to point out, we don't, we're not going to go through verse by verse and word by word, but there are some things in the first two chapters that I want to point out to you that makes you understand or helps you to understand that God, when he created this world, created a perfect world. The first thing that I want to show you is the word good, G-O-O-D, good. We sang about God is good just a moment ago. So look at chapter 1 and verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, that the light was good. Then if you'll notice in verse 10, in verse 10 it says, God called the day land, earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Skip down to verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetables, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Skip down to verse 18. And to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the water swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Skip down to verse 25. God made the beast of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. The last time the word is used is in verse 31 of chapter 1. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. You'll notice in the first few verses, uh, he just says, and God saw what he had done, and it was good. But when he comes to the end of it, he amplifies it by saying, God saw all that he had made and declared it was all good. All of it was good. So God created a perfect world at the very beginning. And he said, God saw, God saw, God saw. It also says, and God said, and God said, let there be, let there be, and God said, let there be. That indicates what we refer to as uh, finite uh, creation. That is, God spoke it, and it came into existence. It didn't take eons of years or millions or billions of years for the earth to create, uh, to be created. God spoke the word. That's how powerful God is. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do anything, and anything that he says, is, there's instantaneous uh, creation, especially in this, in this matter of creating the whole world. So God spoke, and it was, and God saw that it was good. Notice something else that reoccurs throughout the book of, of, of Genesis, chapter 1. Look at verse, um, <clears throat> verse 11. In verse 11 it says, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetables. Plants yielding seed, fruit trees on earth bearing fruit. Notice the term, after their kind, after their kind. Notice in verse 12, after their kind, after their kind. Notice in verse 21, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with, with which the water swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. Look at verse 24. 
Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. Verse 25, God made the beast of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind and God saw that it was good. And that expression after their kind means uh, that you don't have any crossbreeding here in that a monkey will produce a monkey, a cow will produce a cow, a pecan tree produces a pecan, uh, a peach tree produces peaches. You don't go to a peach tree to find tomatoes. Uh, you don't go to the, to the cow to find a horse and so forth. Only horses produce other horses, only cows produce cows, uh, uh, fig trees produce figs, and apple trees produce apple tree, uh, apples, and, and so every plant produces after its own kind. Every animal reproduces itself after its own kind. So there's no evolution here. Uh, there, there's no uh, crossbreeding in, in that sense in which one species of animal or one type of plant will produce a totally different kind of, from, from its own nature. So God created everything as it is, and God created everything. It was perfect. It was good. Uh, it, it was just a wonderful, wonderful world. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11:3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So we accept this by faith, that God spoke the world into existence, and the world that he created was perfect. It was perfect. Uh, God was present in creation. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now in my translation of the Bible, the New American Standard, the word us is capitalized. That is the letter U is. And the word our, the O is capitalized. Uh, whenever you find a word that's capitalized like that, that's a reference to deity. And as I understand us and our, those are plural forms, okay? So all three, we only believe that there's, one, there's only one God, but this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three persons of the Godhead were present in creation. God the Father was there, God the Son was there, God the Holy Spirit was there. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and darkness covered the earth, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the earth. The Spirit of the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was very much involved in the creation of the world. God the Father was involved in the creation of the world. And according to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and also in the book of John chapter 1, the Bible tells us that God the, Holy, the, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was also involved in creation. Paul says in Colossians 1 that, that Jesus Christ created the world, that Jesus Christ holds it all together. It was created by him, for him, and through him. So all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were involved in the creation of the world, and they created a perfect world without sin. The second thing that you'll notice, not only that God created a perfect world, but Lucifer intruded, in, uh, intruded or came into the world, his intrusion, as a rebellious angel, as a rebellious angel. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 2, 4, that God spared not the sons that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So evidently there was a rebellion in heaven. Uh, and that rebellion was led by 
what I call the chief of all the angels, the head, the head honcho of all the angels, uh, the highest of all the angels was an angel by the name of Lucifer. That's his original name, Lucifer. The name Lucifer means the bright and shining one. So all of the angels are beautiful. When you see movies about demons and all of these things and how hideous and heinous, they're terrible looking creatures. No, angels are beautiful creatures. And Lucifer, if there were any degrees of variances in beauty and so forth, he was, the, he was the chief one. He was the highest of them all. And his name means the bright and shining one. In the book of Jude, chapter 6, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains and under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So those angels that rebelled along with Lucifer, some of them are held in a dungeon, in a jail, in the abyss. And uh, one of these days during the uh, tribulation period on the face of the earth, they will be unleashed and uh, will roam the, the earth until, um, until the final battle of Armageddon and Christ comes back to rule and reign forever. But I want you to take your Bibles this time and turn to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. How did Lucifer uh, become Satan? And so we go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. In the 28th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, there is a reference to the king of Tyre. And uh, as in many cases in the Bible, uh, the Bible will use and God will use a human figure to demonstrate and illustrate a spiritual truth. And so I believe that the reference in Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning with verse 11, is a reference to the king of Tyre but it is also a parable or a, or, or a reference or a symbol of Lucifer himself. What happened to Lucifer when he was in heaven that turned him into the devil or Satan as we know it? First of all, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we see Lucifer's original purpose that he was a created being and that he was a perfect being in the beginning. Look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. He, well, let's, let's begin with verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your setting and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. Notice in verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until the unrighteousness was found in you. So if we believe, and I do believe, that this is a reference to Satan and how he was in the beginning, that he was a perfect angel. He was a beautiful angel, and he de he's described uh, by all of these different gems and how precious they are. And so he was a beautiful, beautiful creature. He was perfect. There was no flaw in him at all. In verse 12, uh, in the New International Version, the expression is used, he was the model of perfection. The model of perfection. He was also anointed. Look at verse 14 of Ezekiel chapter 28. You were the anointed cherub who covers... And so he was a cherub in the beginning, and he was an angel who covered. He stood next to the presence of God himself, and he was anointed. 
Not only was he anointed, but he was privileged because he says in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub with, with coverings. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Mountains oftentimes refers to the presence of the Lord. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. So he had the privilege of being uh, right next to the Lord. And uh, he was in the Garden of Eden. And it is believed that he was created to lead all of the angels in the praise of God. So he was created. Now God did not create the devil. He created Lucifer, the angel, the archangel. But Lucifer became the devil by his own choice. So this time I want you to turn back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14. We're talking about in the beginning how all of this got started. Look at Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. Verse 12. Verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12. This is how the, how the, the angel Lucifer became the devil. Isaiah 14 verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have cut down, you have been cut down to the earth. You have been weakened, you, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, now, now verse 13, this is the key to it. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the, in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Notice he says the five I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times Lucifer says this is what he's going to do. The first one is in verse 13 he says I will ascend unto heaven. Now he was already in heaven but what he's saying is I'm not going on a tour. I'm going to, I'm going to go into heaven and I'm going to take over. I'm going to take charge. So I, I will ascend into heaven. In verse 13, he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars. Now, most commentators and scholars agree that the word reference here, stars, is a reference to angels. And he says, I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to sit on God's throne, and I'm going to be over all of the angels. You say, well, I thought you said it was already over the angels. Yes, but that was delegated authority. God created Lucifer to be over all of the angels, but God, Lucifer didn't want to take orders. Lucifer wanted to be his own person, his own authority, and his own God. And so he said, I want, I want to be over the angels, but I want to have authority my own self. I don't want delegated authority from anybody. So he ascended into heaven. He was exalted above the thorns. He said, I will sit upon the mountain." And uh, the mountain, of course, is the center of God's kingdom. And Satan didn't want to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He wanted to pray, my kingdom come, my will be done. In verse 14, he said, I will ascend above the clouds. Now, in the Bible, whenever you have clouds present there, that's a symbol of the presence of God. Over in the Old Testament times when they were in the wilderness with the tabernacle moving around there, how did they know God was with them? The cloud came down and covered the tabernacle and all the people knew that when the cloud was there, God was there. And so now he's saying, I, I, I'm not content to be uh, here taking orders from God. I want to ascend to the mountain. I want to sit on God's throne. Uh, I, I want to be God and I want all of the praise that's being given to the Lord to be directed at me. He says in verse 14, he just comes right out and says it. I will be like the most high. 
So, coveting all of the praise and worship and glory that was being given to the Lord, he coveted for himself and Lucifer. In these five sayings, I will, I will defy God, I will ascend above him, I'm not going to take any more orders from him, I'm going to sit on the throne, I'm going to be boss, I'm going to be God, I will be like God. Egotistical. The middle letter of pride, I. The middle letter of sin, I. The middle letter of Lucifer, I, I, I. So, Lucifer has a destructive scheme. We were to go back to Genesis 3, and we don't have the time to look at it in great detail, but he began his devilish scheme to overtake the world and all mankind as he approached Eve and, and, and told her a lie and persuaded her, oh, God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit. He knows that the minute that you eat of this fruit, you will be like him to be able to know the difference between good and evil. God doesn't want you to be like him. No, God's keeping these things from you. And so he deceived Eve and taking that forbidden fruit, she took it and ate of it, and then she gave it to her husband, Adam. He ate, and it was through their disobedience to God. There was nothing poisonous in the fruit, nothing wrong with the fruit at all. It was simply God said, don't eat of this fruit and of this tree. They disobeyed God. That's what sin is. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is wanting to do things the way you want to do it rather than the way God says for it to be done. And so Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and when they disobeyed God, they opened up the door whereby sin came into the world. And every single person that's born into this world is born with a sinful nature. That, folks, includes you and you and you and you and you and you and all of you and myself as well. When you were born, you were born with a sinful nature. You were born with a tendency to do what's wrong. You don't have to tell or teach a child when it's born to do wrong. It just naturally does things wrong. You have to correct them. You have to discipline. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do this. And they exercise their own free will until they come to an understanding that they need to surrender themselves to God and to be saved. So Satan is in the world today. He's going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But oh, listen, even though it all began in the Garden of Eden, destroying a perfect world and causing sin to come into the world, God has another plan. God has a backup plan. Now, Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden didn't catch God off guard. He didn't say, oh my goodness, look what they have done. Now what am I going to do? No, no, you don't have to do that with the Lord. God know, knew way ahead of time what all was going to happen. Before he ever spoke the first word and brought everything into existence, God knew from the very beginning what Adam and Eve were going to do. He knows what you're going to do before you ever do it. He knows what you're thinking before you think it. He knows where you're going before you go. And he knows what you're going to do before you do it. He's just all-knowing. There's nothing God doesn't know. Nothing. You can't say anything, do anything, go anywhere that God doesn't already know what's going on in your life. He's just that kind of God. He knows all there is to know. He can do anything that needs to be done. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. There's no place in this world you can't get away from God. Not even hell. Because the devil is not in charge of hell. God is. In the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, the devil is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone and he is the one who's being tormented day and night and not, the devil is not in charge of hell. Hell is a prepared place, Jesus said, for the devil and his angels. And a demon 
A demon is a fallen angel. When the, when the devil rebelled against God in heaven, we are told that a, a third of all the angelic hosts rebelled with Lucifer. And they were booted out of heaven, you might say. And, and so Lucifer and the angels that rebelled with him against God are, are called in the Bible demons. That's what a demon is. A demon is a fallen angel who joined forces with Lucifer in their rebellion against God. And so you see, Lucifer wants to be God, but he can't be. God can be everywhere at the same time. Lucifer cannot. He is limited in what he can do. And that's why he needs his demons to do his dirty work for him. And so the demon could be over there with you and over here with you because there, there, there are multiple demons everywhere. There's enough to go around, then some. And so they're busy. They're out to destroy us in this world and to take over. But God has another plan. And that another plan is that God has a plan for a restored world. So let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Look at Genesis chapter 3. And look at verse 15. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 is a promise. God gave a promise. And that promise was that he was going to send a savior into the world to redeem this world. And, and, to, and to gain it back. And God's going to remake this world. He's going to make it into a perfect world again. Notice in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Chapter 3 verse 15. And, and uh, let me kind of give you the background quickly. Uh, Adam and Eve have sinned. God's come calling in them. Have fellowship with them. Where are you Adam? He didn't ask that question because he didn't know where he was. He didn't ask it for his benefit. He asked it. For, uh, he asked it for Adam's benefit. Adam, you need to realize things aren't the same anymore. Where are you, Adam, spiritually? And he said, well, I was afraid, heard your voice. We went and hid ourselves, sold fig leaves together to hide our nakedness. And uh, who told you you were naked? Uh, see, prior to that, uh, uh, they uh, were naked and there was innocence. There was nothing immoral about that relationship at all. But he said, uh, we, you know, he said, have you taken of the forbidden fruit? Yes, I have. The woman you gave me... Uh, she tempted me. Isn't it interesting how we shift the blame to somebody else? You notice he, he, oftentimes we say he was blaming Eve. Well, yes, in a way he was, but ultimately he's blaming God. Go back and reread it. The woman you gave me tempted me and I, gave, I ate. You see, Lord, he was saying in essence, if you hadn't given me that woman, I wouldn't have done it. So he wasn't just blaming Eve, he was blaming God. Oftentimes we do. We blame God for a lot of things God hadn't anything to do with. We need to be careful with that. So here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said to the, to the devil, Satan, and he said to Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. This is what we call the first evangelical announcement by the Lord. In other words, this is a messianic prophecy. This is a promise that God gave to Adam and Eve and to the devil. He says, there, and, and, it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's awkward, it's backwards, we, we think, when you first read that, because he says, uh, the seed of the woman. Well, the woman doesn't have the seed, the woman has the egg. A man has the seed when, when you have reproduction, when you have a child. It's the woman who has the egg, it's the man who has the seed, and yet the Lord reverses it. And now he says, the seed of the woman will bruise the, the, the head of the serpent. The serpent will only bruise his heel. This is a messianic prophecy, folks. This is the first promise of the Messiah. So God has given the promise of a son that's going to be given. And uh, so uh, notice the second thing, not only the promise that was given, the Savior who was given. 
We don't have the time to look at Luke chapter 2. We'll celebrate it in Christmas time, where it says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, is Christ the Lord. So the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And so Jesus came to be our Savior. The promise was given, the Savior was given. And then let's go back. I know we're turning in your Bibles. Hope you got your Bibles. We need to, need to hurry along here, all right? 2 Peter chapter 3. We're getting to a close now, so hang on. 2 Peter chapter 3. There's a new world coming, folks. A new world's a coming. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. A new world is coming. A new world will be given. Notice in 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 10. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a reference to the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming back to this world. And when he comes back, he's going to come back, among other things, to bring the new world into existence. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Uh, now, not that he is a thief, but what about a thief coming? Well, a thief, he's going to break into your house. He's not going to send you a, a letter in the mail or send you an email and say, uh, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock or, or Sunday night around midnight, I'm going to break into your house and take all your belongings. Uh, he's not going to do that. He's going to come into your house when you least expect it, when you're not there or whatever. It's going to be a surprise. That's what he's saying here. When he comes back, it's going to be like a surprise. It's not going to be any announcement saying, okay, the Lord's coming tomorrow at 9 o'clock. No, he's not. If you start that business, you can just mark it down. It's not going to happen. Nobody knows, not even Jesus, when he's going to return to this earth. We do, we do know that he's coming. We just don't know when. It could be today. It could be before this service is over. Could be tonight, could be tomorrow. We don't know when, but we do know he's coming because he promised he would. So he says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now quickly, let me work you walk you through verses 10 and 11 at, and point out some words to you. In verse 10, he talks about this world passing away. Uh, this, means, uh, this doesn't mean annihilation. Uh, it, it means the passing of the heavens from one state of existence to another. From one state of existence to another. In other words, God's going to take this world apart, cleanse it up, purify it, and put it all back together again, okay? So it's going to pass away, not annihilation, just changing its content and nature and existence. In verse 10, you'll notice the word roar. He said there'll be a loud roar. This means a great noise. Some will interpret this like a noise of an arrow as it flies through the air, just, just like that. That's the way it kind of, supposedly, that kind of a sound. It's just going to be a, a, a great roar through the air, crackling, crackling like a, the sound of fire. You hear a fire that's going on in, in Yellowstone Park now, and, and if you were there, you can hear the crackling of the, of the trees and, and everything as it burns. Uh, so there's a purification here. Notice in verse 10, he uses the word elements. The word element here is a word in reference to the smallest um, uh, particle of nature that exists. What is that? An atom? Atom is the smallest element of nature. Every, everything is made up of atoms. This pulpit is made up of atoms. The Bible, my clothes, my body, you, everything in this world is made up of atoms. That's why when you split an atom, what happens? It explodes. It's called an atomic bomb. 
And he says, this world is put together by elements, by atoms, and it's all going to be exploding and it's all going to come back together. So the element, he says in verse 10, intense heat, intense heat, scorching, caused by the splitting of an atom. Verse 10, burned up. That means it's going to be laid bare, discovered, show the futility, uh, uh, and, and then uh, a renovation of it. And then the word in verse 11, destroyed, means to melt and to dissolve. And uh, we don't have this as a whole other sermon altogether, but it just has to do that, that God's going to, he, he, he flooded the world once and killed all the people in the world except for Noah and his family. He's not going to flood the world like that again, but he is going to purify it with fire. And it's going to happen when he comes back to this earth and he's going to tear it all apart, split it apart, cleanse it, purify it, put it all back together again. <clears throat> Let me quickly remind you of the book of Revelation. In the um, 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, it says that John looked up and he saw a new heaven and a new earth. He saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Now, if he's looking up and he's seeing the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, where is he standing? He's got to be standing on something. I believe he's standing on the new world. I don't understand all of it, and this is realism. I suppose, God forgive me if I'm injecting something into it that's not true, but I understand it, that the new city, the new Jerusalem, is going to come down in some way connected to the earth, and, and those 12 gates that are open, there's four, four gates on each side, the, the holy city, new Jerusalem, there's 12 gates there, four on each side, those doors, those gates never close. So you, can, you and I can go back and forth. What's the world out there for? What's all that galaxy out there and all those planets and everything out there for? God has a reason and a purpose for them in some way. Dr. Crystal used to say he felt like that, that, that all of the universe will play a major role in whatever it is that God has in store for us in the future. It may have been what God was referring to when he said in the words of the Apostle Paul, eyes not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Hey folks, it's gonna be different. It's gonna be new and it's gonna be exciting to be in a whole new world and God's gonna put it all back together and the devil will not have anything at all to do with it. He's gonna be shut out, he's gonna be in hell, in torment for all eternity and every one of the fallen angels, the demons will be there with him, the false prophet, the false beast and everybody whose name is not found in the book of life. That's why we spend so much time telling you folks you need to get saved. You need to trust Jesus as your Savior because if you don't have Jesus when you leave this world, you're not going to go be with God because God has said there's only one way to Him and only one way to heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father, Jesus said, but through me. So, folks, it's going to be a great day when Jesus comes back and he puts it all back together again, world without end, a new heaven and a new what? A new earth. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth, the earth, the earth. I read, I'll close with this illustration. 
There's a, a man by the name of Max Anders. He's written a series of books, one of which is, is called What You Need to Know About Spiritual Warfare. And he tells this story that when he was a boy, he went to the movies to watch a Western movie. And in this movie, there was a peddler who would travel from town to town and he had a glass jar. And in this glass jar, he had one of the most menacing, evil-eyed, giant-sized rattlesnakes that any human eye ever laid eyes on. And he would go from town to town, he would go into a saloon, and he would challenge the people in the saloon to get the meanest, strongest, bravest, orneriest guy in town to place his hand up against the glass jar with his snake on the inside of it. And if he could put his hand up against that glass jar, and leave it there, when the snake would strike, he would win the bet. Well, all the townspeople got excited, man. They all got together and said, who's the meanest, toughest, strongest, bravest, orneriest guy in town? They came up with a name, went and told him all about it, and said, we got a chance to make some money here. He said, you come on down here to the saloon. Let's, uh, let, let's see if we can do this. And so the guy, he got to keep his reputation up. So he goes to the saloon. And uh, so when he gets there, the, uh, the, the peddler gets all, all the bet money together and everything. So he pulls, the, he pulls the blanket away from this glass jar. And there is the most menacing, evil-eyed, biggest rattlesnake that he'd ever seen in his life. And that uh, big old brave, courageous uh, guy, he began to sweat. <laughs> Perspiration bees popped out on his forehead. And, and so he, he kind of walked slowly up to the jar and he raised his hand and started to put his hand up against the jar. And boy, when he did, that snake recoiled and got real tense and everything. His rattler started rattling and his tongue started coming out real fast. And so he put his hand up there and all of a sudden the snake, like that, and he jerked his hand back. Humiliated him because he was supposed to be the toughest, meanest, orneriest guy, bravest guy in town. Here's that old rattlesnake striking at him. He jerked back. Lost the bet. The peddler collected his money, went on down to the next city, town, do it all over again. That's how he made his living. That's how he made his living. But you know, I've often thought about that, as did Max Anders, a metaphor, that scenario found for spiritual warfare. The snake is Satan, and the glass, that's Jesus. And if you're on the right side, away from that snake, you don't have anything to fear. You don't have to be afraid. But if you're on the inside of that glass, or if there's no glass there, you have every reason in the world to be afraid. You know, someday, this world is coming to an end, and it's going to go through a change. I just wonder, whose side are you going to be on? Where will you stand? Will you be with Jesus and in Jesus? Or will you be exposed to the serpent, the devil? If you're with Jesus, you're going to spend eternity with him. If you're not, you're going to spend eternity in hell. And there'll never be another opportunity for you to trust Jesus again. You've got to do it now. Let's bow together. Father, we realize that uh, this world someday will go through a tremendous change. And we don't have to be afraid at all. 
because he who lives in us is greater than he who is in the world. That's the Lord Jesus. And when we're in Jesus and he is in us, we don't have to be afraid where we're going to spend eternity. We're going to be with you. And I pray that today, if there's someone here who's never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit of God, bring conviction to their heart. Take not just my words, Lord, but your word, your holy word, the Bible, the living word of God that's quicker and more powerful than a sharper than any two-edged sword. And use that to, to, to cut our hearts, Lord, and to get to the very core of our being and help us to realize that without Jesus, we're lost. And we need to repent of our sins and invite him into our lives and change us on the inside and prepare us for that day when we will all be together, world without end. It's an exciting time, Father, to be in you and to look forward to that day when you come. May we all be gathered together then, and we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.